0: Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld.
1: Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture.
0: Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome back, everybody, to Your Cases on Hold, episode nine. Can you believe we've been doing this for eight episodes already. That's
1: crazy. Talk about a good
0: time.
1: And <laughs> if you've stuck with us this long, thank you very much. There's still more to come.
0: No, for sure. And if you uh, haven't been listening the whole way and you just tuned in, definitely check back on our previous episodes. We are today covering articles in the JBJS, the first issue of May, which is May 4th. And as always, these opinions that we express today are those of mine and Antonia's and not reflective of the board of trustees or the other editors in the constituent journals. The takes are hot, sometimes intentionally so. If you are an author and having your work reviewed here, enjoy it for what it is. (laughs) And if you are interested in having your work covered on your cases on hold, you only need to have the paper submitted and accepted and slated for publication, and then we'll be reviewing, but be careful what you wish for. Um,
1: We'll have a good time with you, promise.
0: Right, that's right. And uh, stay tuned, because hopefully in the next couple of episodes, we may be recording from a location, or we might be uh, having some guest stars joining us like when Batman and Robin showed up on Scooby-Doo. you know you love that show from when you were a kid. I always enjoyed it. Couldn't wait to see who the, the guest stars were going to be. So we'll have something like that to kind of mix it up. In all seriousness, Your Case on Hold is brought to you by the Miller Review Course. Folks are signed up or signing up to take the part one, but there's also a part two, and that takes place in the summer. So keep your eyes out for that, Lifelong Learners definitely check it out no matter where you are in your career arc within the field of orthopedic surgery. With that, uh, as by means of introduction, I'm Andrew Schoenfeld, Deputy Editor for Methods at the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Controlling interest of International Immobiliare, my co-host.
1: Antonia Chen, deputy editor of Adult Knee Reconstruction, and found out this new thing called foreign accent syndrome, where you can automatically get a new foreign accent just like that.
0: Mm, Are you a controlling interest, though?
1: (laughs) No, but I'd love to be. I mean, picking up a Scottish accent or Australian accent, I mean, or Irish, any accent would be amazing.
0: (laughs) You are a controlling interest in the hip society and the knee society, which we just found out.
1: Thank you. That social media is an interesting platform.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So let's get into it. These are the headlines. So mine is um, conditionally essential amino acid supplementation reduces postoperative complications and muscle wasting after fracture fixation, a randomized controlled trial. This is by Hendrickson and colleagues from the University of Iowa. There is a commentary. So check that out to see what the invited reviewer or uh, expert in this space has to say about it beyond my own thoughts and erudite commentary. This was a randomized controlled trial, so uh, always interesting to review those, and this one was uh, exceptionally well done for individuals who want to block out their, R- their, their own approaches to an RCT. Uh, you could definitely use this as a template they looked at uh, adults who sustain pelvic and extremity fractures stratified based on injury characteristics. And that's important so that there's a, uh, an additional balance between the, the two cohorts. They had 400 subjects, so uh, an incredibly large, heavy lift for sure. They're looking at uh, complications and fat free mass, in, which is for the body composition in individuals over the course of the postoperative recovery beyond the standard. RCT comparisons, which is generally just a bivariate comparison, assuming comparability between the two cohorts, they did use a linear mixed effects model. So that's some added pizzazz. Long story short, the supplemental group receiving the uh, conditionally essential amino acids, they had significantly lower complications and they were able to maintain their fat-free muscle mass, essentially, while it was decreased significantly in the individuals just for the near term, the first kind of six weeks post-recovery, but for the control group, that was decreased. And then at subsequent time points that they evaluated, uh, things sort of balanced out. But definitely a protective near-term benefit for what is a very low-cost, low-risk intervention. This was work that was done at the University of Iowa they do call for multi-center prospective studies, which, sure, I mean, you can always call for more research, but at the same time, this seems pretty reasonable to me and, and clinically actionable. At the same time, what benefit is appreciated does seem to be only for, uh, you know, the immediate post-operative recovery period, but if you can minimize complications in any way, shape or form, I think that's a win.
1: I agree, and I'm curious if this actually can be used in other areas too, right? They have a very specific patient population here it might be neat to see it outside of things uh, in this area. So it'd be curious to see that um, and outside of trauma in the era of optimizing patients, taking these well-done randomized controlled trials. And as they call it, you know, more randomized controlled trials are great. We should do these in all different fields, but is this something that's just good for patients in general? So maybe you and I should start taking this. (laughs) I already use this all the time. Dang it. I knew it. (laughs) I'm behind the (laughs) routine. Come on, the protein shake. (laughs) Now I I know you're drinking in clinic. (laughs) I thought it was just Dunkin' Donuts coffee because you're a boss. Dunkin' Donuts is the way to go, but
0: (laughs) way to go. Well, any mix of protein and uh, pre-operative pre-workout supplements, (laughs) you should use those pre-operatively too.
1: (laughs) It's true. All those are good. So Mine's a little uh, different, a little bit probably more controversial than yours. Yours is a nice randomized controlled trial. So mine looked at patient and surgeon ratings of patient involvement in decision-making aids are not aligned. So the title already tells you what the solution is or what the conclusion is of it. This is by Alzaki et al. Um, it's free for 30 days. So again, no excuse not to read this. So we kind of think that shared decision-making aid is the new holy grail, I would say, right? Everyone is saying shared decision-making aids, talking to patients, talking to patients, making sure that they understand what their, you know, risks, benefits, their options are are great. And that's always been a tenant of any sort of medical management as well as surgical management. But these, this group asked a very interesting question. They're basically asking, well, does it actually align? Does it make a difference, right? What do surgeons think they're doing and what do patients think they're getting? And do, are they actually set up against each other? So the term shared is what shared decision making is all about the patients and the surgeons should be sharing what they're discussing. So this is a study that looked at um, 136 patients who were getting musculoskeletal care for conditions involving upper and lower extremities. So it was all over the place. So it was all different areas. And these were not just surgical only patients, which I think is where the shared decision-making often comes into play a lot. So it it is an open cohort of patients and it's not a huge cohort of patients for the duration of the study. You know, it almost went over for um, a year and a half and only had 136 patients. Now I can imagine filling this out Going through it is always hard to recruit patients, as you and I both know from doing these studies. They use something called a control preferences scale. So it assessed the degree of uh, desired degree of involvement in a medical decision making aid as rated on a five point scale. So the difference between one through five is actually pretty significant, I would say. So they looked at this and they said, surgeons thought patients were more involved in decision-making than they actually were. So perceived from the surgeon perspective, they're like, okay, so patients are actually deciding a lot more when they, not necess- they weren't necessarily doing it. Uh, they did say that patients who didn't have a high school diploma had less involvement in their decision-making. And then finally, the only factor associated with higher patient-perceived involvement was higher patient-preferred involvement, which makes sense. A patient wants to be involved, and more likely going to perceive that they were more involved in it. So the study does bring to light one of the areas that's becoming a bigger area of research focus, which is shared decision-making. And we have to be cautious in using just shared decision-making, and just putting out there and saying, okay, here you go. Now that we've had a shared decision, then you're all good. We, we're, we're on the same page. And the answer is we're not on the same page. So there's ways that we can do this going forward. You know, how can we make sure that patients are more involved so, they have to prefer it. So, you know, tell patients, do you want to be involved? Um, and potentially you know, to ask them what makes what matters most to them. You know, so one shared decision making aid that's in our clinic says, are you ready for surgery? And a lot of times patients are like, no, I'm not. So, immediately their preference is off the, to the table right there. Maybe to say, look for checklists and reorient, reorient like misperceptions of patients. So the study is interesting in that it gives you some basis of shared decision-making, the things that we have to be careful of. I really like to see this cohort expanded a lot more and to different areas, especially to surgical decision patients.
0: Yeah, all all reasonable points. I think um, you hit all the the high points from my end. This, This paper also has a visual summary. So for those who are interested, check that out. This now brings us to the time where you get that phone call and it's like, Hello, this is Dr. Lecter on consults. Unfortunately, your patient will not be able to come down to the operating room. But do let me know if there's anything that I can do for you, Antonia.
1: Bring my I'm patient old. down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe maybe you'd like a dinner with a nice Chianti and a side of fava beans instead.
1: Well, that's going to be the case because I dinner, will be 3 a.m. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, yes, you know the deal. So that brings us to your cases on hold featurette. We're discussing today the effect of sex hormone deficiency on the incidence of rotator cuff repair. This is an analysis of a large insurance database. In this case, uh, Truven Health Market Scan. This is by uh, Smith and colleagues. Uh, There is also a commentary for this, so definitely check it out again. This is a retrospective review, large scale, big data Truven Health Market Scan, looking at the rotator cuff repair, the odds of rotator cuff repair for men and women, women with estrogen deficiency, men with testosterone deficiency. Fairly straightforward study. They made some comparisons using uh, for you know baseline assessments of the prevalence or relative risk rather of estrogen deficiency among patients also in the Veterans Genealogy Project. So kind of a useful merger of two different datasets to kind of get a more holistic sense. As it turns out, the odds of rotator cuff repair are 48% higher for women with estrogen deficiency and 89% higher for men with testosterone deficiency. They also call for more prospective work to understand the pathophysiology and I guess the, the intersection of this as it relates to sex hormones. The points that I would raise for this is we're talking about rotator cuff repair. So that means that the patient has a rotator cuff tear, and then they're indicated for a rotator cuff repair. What about the patients who have just rotator cuff tears and, and don't have repairs? It seems to me that you know, with these kinds of data sets, that could have been looked at and is potentially more informative uh, because obviously you don't want patients to have rotator cuff tears uh, if you can help it. And that's the condition of interest that's probably more, I guess, actionable or treatable. I mean, my question here is, how does this translate to treatment? So, the logical thing is, we'll just, you know, supplement estrogen or supplement testosterone. Neither one of those are entirely benign um, supplementations. Uh, testosterone can increase your risk for a, a lot of things, including, you know, certain malignancies and and uh, behavioral issues. Estrogen supplementation can increase risk of DVTs and VTED, of course, which most immediately comes to mind for us in the orthopedic space, but other, other issues as well. So if you would do supplementation, in this case, you're only talking about supplementation to avoid rotator cuff repair, which kind of leaps over the critical issue of the actual inciting pathology. And uh, I I think it was, you know, a very interesting paradigm, taking the Veterans Genealogy Project information and merging that with the Truven Health. I think that's very interesting and probably is a a framework from which others could develop additional research ideas. So that's an interesting insight. The actionability of the findings here, they don't even really get into that too much. So it left me uh, asking some questions and um, certainly, when we're talking about specifically odds of rotator cuff repair, that's not the same thing as rotator cuff tear.
1: I'm not put it any better. It's one of those areas where I'm curious where the research design came from. They do kind of say there that you know patients don't heal as well if they're estrogen deficient or testosterone deficient after surgery, and that's probably true across the board. Kind of talking about the protein and that we said in the first case. And areas like that, that make a big difference. So I I think I can see how deficiencies can play into the healing process. But I I think there's a lot of factors that the Truvian database can't pull into effect. For example, specifically looking at rotator cuff repair, one row versus two row, the chronicity of the tear, you know, and, and all sorts of areas there too that, you know, that we don't have the size of the tear, things like that you can't pull from a database because those values are just not available to you. So I completely agree with you. Looking at operative management as opposed to non-operative management would be actually really interesting to see just tear alone um, and then just in injuries alone in general with it. So you're right. For all those researchers out there, this is a big call. Use a Truvium database, which is hard to get. There's no doubt about it. And mix it with genealogy, which is a cool combination and say, all right, what are the differences there? You know, there are definitely sex differences, I'm sure. So other sex hormones that probably play an effect to it. And then we go back to preventative medicine again, right? Do we prevent uh, patients by taking giving them protein water? You know, here's a sugar pill or you know snake oil. Like maybe that works, but estrogen and testosterone are not benign drugs. But if they're useful and they show a big difference, then potentially in low doses or small amounts, or you know preoperatively or you know pre-surgical or post-surgical. But in this database itself, it opens a lot more questions than it does necessarily give answers.
0: But uh, a lot of good stuff to sink your yes. teeth into and. Um definitely can inform future research, not even just in this space, but in other aspects of, uh, of orthopedics. So thumbs up for that. Get the, the ding. Next is our toss-up. Acute compartment syndrome modeling with sequential infusion shows the deep posterior compartment is not functionally discrete. This is work from Schutbach and colleagues uh, that was conducted in Canada. It is a, a cadaveric study. My first question is, uh, why is this a toss-up? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um but um we're just tossing things up that's what we're doing yeah
0: i mean toss up to you it's a cadaveric study multi compartment sequential pressurization was performed with simultaneous monitoring and there it is very interesting and i think that it has immediately uh, clinically actionable prospects uh, particularly since we're talking about release of the deep posterior compartment which can uh, extend both the time of these procedures in patients who sometimes are polytrauma and have limited physiologic reserve, and then also the amount of dissection that has to be done, increasing the risk for uh, iatrogenic nerve injury, et cetera. So they showed that release of one of the two of either anterior or lateral compartments was sufficient for decompression to acceptable pressure levels. And the deep posterior compartment does not appear to be completely discrete, according to their uh, observations. So uh, again, they, they feel like it may not need to be released in all acute compartment syndrome scenarios. That's a nice statement. But then it's like, okay, well, which ones does it need to be released? And, and obviously, this is a, a real equivalent to the benchtop basic science work. It's a cadaveric study. It's an idealized environment. The, the sample itself is quite small. And so not necessarily translatable, but a very interesting observation, hence why it was published here and one that can certainly inform further steps in management. So their clinical relevance, I think, is definitely well stated. Surgical techniques could be modified. They say can, I would say could. Um, It depends on each clinical case, but certainly in the right situations and keep an eye out for maybe just the anterior lateral gets you where you need to go.
1: Yeah. It's questioning all the dogma. I remember being a resident we always had the two incisions. You got to get yep. in there and get every single spot in there and make sure we release everything or else we'd be doing a lot of checks at night. So it is one of those things where it's nice to have these studies that question the dogma that we don't necessarily have out there. So that's where it tosses up our original training. That's <laughs> where I'll say it's tossed up. Um, they, it would be nice to see a sample size calculation, why 10 cadaveric studies anatomical differences that were noted between them, you know, in terms of, you know, size of compartment, things like that, that are not necessarily taken into account. It was interesting to see that the large, the leg can take a pretty good volume of fluid, right? It was over 500 CC. So, you know, it takes a lot of blood to get in there, but a lot of bleeding comes from, you know, fractures themselves and and injuries. So things to watch out for as residents, but this could change the way we do practice and don't go digging.
0: Yes. I And, and I think that, um, this and, and even the previous one, I think, are you know bringing back the Kaiser-Sose paradigm. I think both of these are readily the rotator cuff tear with association with sex hormone and this one readily testable material that could show up very soon in the near future. So um, Kaiser-Sose shows up again. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing you that you didn't need to study JBJS to prepare for your tests. <laughs> all right go. big finish baby all right so tell me about bone morphologic differences in knee osteoarthritis
1: this is by Sadiq we at all and it is looking at a CT scan study Looked at over 1,000 patients which is nice but only 163 of these patients had um, osteoarthritis so they compared non-osteoarthritis to osteoarthritis patients and no, so some, some of them are not surprised but they wanted to see if there's anatomical differences between them. So the osteoarthritis patients had more varus than the ones who are not osteoarthritis. That's why they're undergoing surgery per se. So that's not surprising. A few things that I would say is they looked at a lot of different measurements, which is interesting. Sometimes they weren't as significant. So for example, they should found a smaller medial posterior slope. We were comparing 84 uh, degrees to 9.2 degrees. So not really that different clinically, but some of the things were work much more different. So for example, the transepicondylar access, the surgical transcondylar access, I put my fingers on it and I feel it where it is and I get my rotation of my implant. That was a difference between osteoarthritic and non-osteoarthritic, 0.3 to 1.2 degrees. I'm sorry, 0.3 to 1.3 to 1.2 degrees, which one degree can actually make a little bit of a difference, especially in the era of navigation, robotics and uh, technology. So really, what it comes down to for this is there are bone morphological differences, which probably doesn't surprise us to a great degree. But how do we translate this into what we do for a living? And by doing a living, I mean doing a total knee replacement. Do we do kinematic alignment? Do we do mechanical alignment? Do we do different things because you have a different anatomy? And this goes back to a tenant that I've been saying all along that would be great: is if we scanned every human being when they were at a young age before any sort of damage, now past puberty probably, and then use that template. Later on in life, you could actually get what native anatomy is. We spent a lot of time talking back and forth about, well, let's restore the native anatomy. Let's restore the native anatomy. I don't know what my native anatomy is. So if we had a scan of an MRI or CT scan, both when we are young, and we translate that in the future and we reproduce that, then I can tell patients, I will make your knee 20 years old again. But right now I can't do that. So this is getting us in the right direction of just noting different morphological differences, Um, different, sorry, angle differences and bone anatomy differences. And then we'll see if this translates to something else in the future. But for now, this is just pointing out information and saying, here you go, do it as you will.
0: Yeah, but, you know, really interesting, very insightful. It does have an infographic for those who are visual learners and want the insights there. My big finish article is combined surgical dislocation and periacetabular osteotomy for complex residual leg calve perthes deformities, intermediate term outcomes. This is a retrospective epidemiologic insight into the work that was done at this center. It's 31 hips with complex LCP deformities undergoing the surgical dislocation and periastabular osteotomy procedure. They had average follow-up of 8.4 years. They did quite well, of course, which is sort of expected in these types of single center retrospective series where you have people who are experts in working in this space, 85% of the hips were able to be preserved. As the interested listener will recall from prior podcasts, when, when I have studies like this that I'm covering, I mean, the biggest take-home message is, yes, it's great that they were able to do this. They show it's feasible. They show it's possible. There is a built-in selection bias confounding by indication, and in this case, an expertise bias, not only even from the surgeons themselves, but the people who are sending patients to them potentially, the people who are working with them, the people who are rehabbing these individuals, the entire Floor of the hospital, the nursing staff, they see this more regularly than they might at your particular uh, center. So, not um, necessarily a reason to put anything on hold, of course. This is their legitimate experience. But the question comes up when you're saying, okay, well, I can do this and I can replicate this. That's where you just, you know, there's a cause for pause and might need to think about your own experience or get some additional training or head out and see these folks and see what they do so that you can replicate it in your own practice.
1: I like it. Things I don't do in private practice, but <laughs> good thing to have talking about my own practice. The one that I'm talking about for the next big finish is tapered material loss and total hip replacements. Is it affected by joint friction? Um, this is by McCarty et al. And the idea is we have multiple different surfaces, and we've gone through multiple iterations of surfaces, metal on metal, metal on poly, ceramic on ceramic, ceramic on poly. And the biggest one that's been the issue over time, especially with recalls and things like that, are metal on metal heads. So the idea is, is you have if you have increased joint friction, will that cause taper material loss? And does that contribute to potential metallosis or trinunosis that we see? Now, the study looked only at metal and metal heads. So they looked. They took a bunch of basically recalled implants, and they took only metal and metal heads, and they took retrieval systems, and they go went in and tested them in a laboratory setting. Now one of the big downsides, I would say, for this, which they had to exclude, is they excluded 52 because they had insufficient superior-inferior unworn surfaces that were available, meaning 52 of them had such terrible wear or such devastating wear that they can actually use it in the testing principles. So those are the ones we probably want to know is that joint friction that's created from all that wear actually leading to the trinionosis. So those are the ones you actually want to use, I would say, but that said, you couldn't use it for testing because it would be um, obscured by the data there. So it's obscured by the results that were already present. So um, they looked at this, they tested them, um, they put them through a whole lot of ringers and a lot of mechanical testing there and found that the amount of metal metal debris and corrosion products was not correlated with joint friction moments. So that wear from the metal on metal moving or from the actual articular surface didn't contribute to the trunnion wear itself. So other factors are at play here, and there's a whole bunch of different factors that can affect it, both size, material, implants, things like that. One of the things that would have been really interesting actually is to see this in metal on poly ones. So they only use metal and metal implants, but they use metal and poly. That's one more used without the world and potentially more relevant and curious if those particles can actually contribute because those patients with metal and poly are still getting trinionosis, just not to the same degree as the metal and metal. So interesting study to add to it, but this at least gives us some starting information to say it's not actually the junctional surface that's causing the problem or junctional friction, the joint friction that's causing it. But one, ruling out one area, there's still multiple areas at play.
0: Yeah, I mean, the metal-on-metal metal ones are the real bad actors, right?
1: They are, and the bigger is not better. So that's the tough one there, and that's why it's being used less and less. And that's the other hard part about this study, too, is just because metal-on-metal metal is not being used as much, it's not necessarily as relevant as before.
0: All right, the last one. Got to go fast here. The long-term clinical results of total Taylor replacement at 10 years or more after surgery. This is by Morita and colleagues. This is work that was done in Japan, the actual clinical substrate is procedures from October 2005 to April 2011. It's 19 ankles in 18 patients. And this is using a total Taylor prosthesis for osteonecrosis. The median follow-up was an astounding 152 months. Uh, Again, not surprising in this kind of clinical retrospective, pain and function scores were improved. Osteophytes and degenerative changes in the adjacent joints were observed but did not impact the overall results, and they report what they call stable clinical outcomes over 10 years. So really interesting work that uh, is able to follow a relatively recognizably small series of patients for an extensive period of time, probably not replicable in many practices within the United States. So it's interesting to have these longer-term follow-ups at the same time, the same issues that I raised with the previous article from Nepal and colleagues around the pelvic acetabular osteotomies for LCP, same thing goes here. There's a selection bias. There's an indication bias. In this case, there's a surveillance bias and possibly an information bias. The patients want to you know, make their surgeons happy and tell them that they feel really good, not doubting it, of course, but just that there's subliminal even you know, biases that can be introduced. And then... You know, there's this is a a particular context in which this is occurring that's not necessarily reproducible in Boston, in New York, in Philadelphia, in Dallas, in Minnesota, in California. So, um, again, useful information, uh, very interesting for those who are working in this space and around this particular condition. How it applies to your clinical practice—that's the choose-your-own-adventure piece. And with that. We have come to another end, friends, of an episode of Your Cases on Hold. Be sure to give us that five-star rating on the service you're listening on. Check out these articles on JBJS. Check them out in the print issue. Be sure to subscribe. Check our back issues in terms of our previous recordings if you haven't listened to them already. Or you know what? Listen to them again because you probably missed something, like a super cool Easter egg. We're going to continue to try throwing those in. And, and advanced notice in uh, the first week in June. It's very rare that Antonia and I are seen together, but we will be together at the Association of Bone and Joint Surgeons meeting. So if you are attending, be sure to uh, connect with us there. I will be at the International Society for the Study of Lumbar Spine in the second, next week, next week coming in May. So uh, if you happen to be there, you can hook up with me. It is in Boston, but I don't think Antonia is going to be there, given that her spine interest is like a decade in the past.
1: You People have any upcoming conferences where you're going to be? So I did come close to spine and then right. I saw the light. <laughs> to joints. So if two things. I'll be at um, ESCA conference in the end of April. So if you're there, that'd be fantastic. And we might even do a live recording of the two of us in the same location come June. That could be interesting. Yeah.
0: No, it's definitely uh, one of the things that that uh, is uh, potentiality. So with that being said, we're out of time. We'll try to do better next time and hope you enjoyed.
1: Thanks, everyone.